I'd like to have you turn to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. As you're turning there, just a quick reminder here, it's been just a few weeks since we were in Hosea. Chapter 4, I started with a little introduction in verses 1 and 2. We'll come back to that just for a point of review. But this whole prophecy itself, given to a man named Hosea, which means salvation, begins quite uniquely with God commanding him to go and marry a harlot so that he and his wife Gomer and even their children would become object lessons for the northern kingdom of Israel that actually became and, and began completely against the will of God. And even though the nation was to be split as indicated by the things that had happened with David and, and, and with Solomon, nonetheless, the people of the Northern Kingdom under the leadership of Jeroboam began a whole different religious system that was based on worshiping idols. And once the truth of God's word was left out of their, their whole system, then all of these sins that we're going to look at in this list here in chapter 4 in just a moment begin. But it becomes a lesson for us that we might stay focused and conscious on the one most important aspect about the Word of God is that without the Word of God, we're going to stray. The psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But once we set that word aside, then we walk in darkness. And so now in chapter 4, after this whole life lesson that Hosea had to go through with, with Gomer and their children, who, would, who were named No Mercy, and not my people, that was their names. Yet the Lord made it clear that one day the people would be his people and they would have God's mercy. So now God direct, directs all of his attention to the people in the nation or the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy, a contention with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, no mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out, and blood touches blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive, nor reprove another. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night and I will destroy thy mother. Uh, let, let me interject there really quick. The, 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 thy mother is the nation of Israel. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
As I said, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hosea, so, so let me give this quick review of these first five verses. The Lord was issuing a strong indictment against the northern kingdom of Israel using the language of a courtroom hearing. Think about the very first phrase that we see there in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. It's very similar in a sense to that command that is given in any courtroom that says, you know, stand up and respect the judge who's coming in because he has judgments to make and you need to listen to them. This was an exhortation, though, to a whole nation of people. And there were five charges. Actually, there were more. But we began last time by looking at a few charges that were made by God to the people that were leveled against them in the first two verses alone, just in the first two verses. The first charge had to do with the people deceiving and betraying others. They were neither truthful nor faithful to keep their word. That is the phrase, there is no truth, there in verse 1. This sin, of course, leads to all the other deceitful behavior that will be mentioned in the subsequent uh, charges. It begins with truth. Without truth, there's deception. Without, you know, when there's deception, there's lies. Where there's lies, uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's just, it's just a downward spiral. The second charge made against Israel was that the people showed no mercy. They showed no love toward each other and toward others. That is the phrase, nor mercy. There is, no, there is no mercy in the land that is being shown by anyone, whether the people or the priests or the prophets. None of them were showing God's mercy, which is very clear that it is something that is given in the law that the people were, were supposed to do. The needy were neglected or ignored. There were few people who felt compassion and, and fewer still that showed mercy to those in need. The people became consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Selfishness, personal interest dominated their lives. I can interject here, sounds very much like today, doesn't it? In, in, in many ways, in many cases. The third charge against Israel had to do with their abandoning God and abandoning the knowledge of God. That is, of knowing him personally and intimately. Notice that last phrase there in verse 1. Nor knowledge of God in the land. There is no knowledge of God in the land. It is not just about knowledge from the standpoint of knowing about a God or knowing that there is a God. This is really focusing its attention on knowing God. Knowing God. It means establishing a personal relationship with God, which leads to walking with and fellowshipping with Him through prayer and the study of His Word. By this time, there were none who recognized, much less accepted the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel. There was in the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a, a, a remnant of, of people who still believed. Judah would get close to what Israel was like earlier when the Assyrians had come to judge them. Or God allowed the Assyrians to come and judge the northern kingdom later. But even in Judah, they were moving in that direction away from God. The last charge, it really is not the last charge because there's a lot of other charges throughout this whole chapter. But for purposes of verses 1 and 2 and understanding those, the last charge that's given against Israel there is a combination of charges found in verse 2, the culmination and result of the previous sins. 
So when you think of what it says in verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. Those sins were the result of what they didn't do with those other things that they should have done in verse 1. Because there was no truth, because there was no mercy, because there was no knowledge of God in the land, then they went down that path of, of swearing or cursing, actually. And that involves, actually, the name of God. That's a breaking of the law, the very first couple of laws or commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which takes place constantly, even daily, even on TV, even, you know, wherever we are, we hear people take the name of Jesus in vain. They use his name as a cuss word in our society today. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. Literally, that is bloodshed upon bloodshed. People that are supposed to love one another, that are supposed to strengthen one another, that are supposed to love their neighbors as themselves, that doesn't matter anymore. The people that violated the laws and commandments of God by, as I said, pronouncing curses, telling lies, murdering, stealing, committing adultery, and as a result, they brought judgment and suffering to themselves. That is what happens when we disobey the Word of God, when we rebel against the Word of God. We bring judgment and suffering upon ourselves. But it also brought judgment and suffering to the land. And it also brought suffering and judgment to their animals, as we'll see shortly in the next three verses. But the worst is probably mentioned at the end of verse 2. Bloodshed upon bloodshed, breaking that commandment of the Lord, thou shalt not murder. And as I explained last time, that this was not just thou shalt not kill. The word is very clear there in the Hebrew that this is about murder with intent to take a life. But the people had broken all restraints. You know, we talked a little bit about restraints on Sunday morning as we were dealing with that passage that I shared with you of the restraints that people were trying to cast off of themselves. They, wanted, they didn't want to hear God. They want, they want to have anything to do with God. But this was, taken, this was happening way, way back in the time of, of, of the kings. The people had broken all restraints. Neither God's word, the people's consciousness, nor any type of reasoning whatsoever put a restraint on their behavior. Nothing. In a word, they went wild. And we see a lot of wild nowadays, don't we? I, I, was, I was checking out some videos on YouTube, prayerfully, by the way. just want you to know I don't just sit around watching YouTube all the time, like if I really enjoy it. But, but it, it, it was something that I just felt, you know, it, it was really a, a, a Christian-based uh, site that was talking uh, you know, about the, uh, the influence that, uh, that Hollywood has on, on, on the culture and, and all. But uh, in digging deeper into these, these particular uh, uh, subcultures, you know, uh, there, there was just so much about sat Satanism and uh, demon worship and, and, and whatnot. And, and then they would show these clips of all these parties that they were having. I mean, they just, you know, they were just mocking everything, mocking Christ, mocking God, mocking the cross. You know. And people are, are just going wild. We, we think, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's take this, maybe it's a mundane uh, example, but, you know, after France won the World Cup, they had riots in, 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 in France. And, and people were killed because of the rioting. Well, that was really great, wasn't it? 
Just, I mentioned the other day as we were looking at that passage that uh, this world's gone crazy. No, not crazy. It's gone mad. No, not mad. It's gone insane. <laughs> and every day it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. Because the people are trying to cast every restraint off. We, we don't want anything to do. That was Psalm 2. I knew what psalm it was. I, I was going to tell you. Psalm 2. Yeah. It's like I forgot a song, song lyrics today. Something's wrong here. You know, so it must be the age. So they either denied or ignored God's word and his commandments. They denied it or they ignored it or they just did both. In reality, that's what they did. They did both. They denied and ignored God's word and his commandments. They allowed their hearts to become so hardened that they were no longer even convicted of the wrong that they did. Now, you get a little sense of that in Romans chapter 1, and that's, again, you know, we always come back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 down to the end. You get closer to the end of Romans chapter 1, and you begin to realize that that's exactly what Paul is saying, that people just no longer are even convicted of the wrong they did, and then if others are doing wrong, they, they commend them for that. That's another part of our society that's going crazy. There were no rational thoughts on the meaningful issues of life in the time of Hosea. I mean, issues like righteousness, issues like godliness, issues like eternity. You bring that up in public schools today, what are you going to get? You need somebody to tell you, you can't talk about that here. And yet education, when this country was founded, was founded on the word of God. In fact, the Bible was the textbook for all, this, for all the schools. Now things have changed. No rational thoughts on the meaningful issues of life as righteousness, godliness, eternity. They, they yearned for the moment. They, they live for the moment. You know, this, this is what the world does today. They live for the moment. They live for the present. They live for the now. That's what all of the commercials on TV, you know, uh, are all about. You know, everything's about the, the now, you know. How you can feel good now. The moment, you know. But not about what, yes, what is yet to come. Doesn't matter. It was as Jesus pointed out in a parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, Verse 16, it says, He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and, and he thought within himself, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And notice verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul? I, I've always liked that verse. I don't know why. He's just Here's a guy talking to himself, you know. Soul. Thou hast much goods laid up for, my, for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, there's, there's a little phrase that always comes after that. It's not here, but there's a little phrase that comes after that, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now if you remember when we were talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, they were, they were in, a, in the midst of a prosperous time. Now it was declining for sure. But they were still being prosperous during that time of, of Hosea's prophecy. So they, they were so much more consumed with things. And they, and they had gods that they prayed to. We'll talk about their gods in a moment. But they had gods that they prayed to, you know, for success. They had gods that they prayed to for, for prosperity. They had gods that they prayed to so that they themselves could become much better off. 
Yet the people had hardened their hearts to the things of God. They were no longer rich toward God. They may never, you know, really when you think about it, the northern kingdom of Israel never was rich toward God because it began completely away from God. Jeroboam didn't want to have to worship in Jerusalem. He wanted to have his own thing. He wanted to usurp the authorities of the priests and the prophets and even the kings. But together the people had hardened their hearts to the things of God when all along they should have known. They should have known what the Lord required of them in the law. They were not, by the way, that far removed from the word of God. Yet they chose to go away from it. They chose to walk away from it. They chose to become a generation without God. This is what we see in our country today. A choosing to become a generation without God. I want you to consider these Proverbs. Proverbs 28, verse 14. Happy is the man that feareth always. That is, to fear the Lord. How many times do we read, even in the, in the book of Proverbs, fear the Lord is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and understanding. To fear the Lord means to worship the Lord. It means to, it means to reverence Him. It means to respect Him. It means to bow down to God. It means to honor God and allow Him to be the one to speak and to, and to lead and to guide and to direct through His word, through His wisdom, through His understanding, and through His will. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. There's no other way about that. And notice, it isn't fall into a pit, fall into mischief. Proverbs 29, verses 1 through 3. And I, I was only going to read one, but you know, I looked at verses 2 and 3, and they apply so much to this passage in, in Hosea. He that, being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. When you begin to harden your neck against God, just like a, a beast of burden that decides, you know, you harden your neck because you're pulling back away from God who wants you to go his direction. We call that backsliding. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. When, but notice the next two verses. When the righteous are in authority. Now, this, is, this applies in this particular sense as a complete contrast to the northern kingdom of Israel and to the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel because when you do a study of all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, you realize not one of them was a good king. Each and every one of them was a wicked king. So when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Now again, these people were prosperous, They were doing all manner of wicked things with one another. They, they were living for the moment, but there was no rejoicing unto God. That, that's the difference here. When the people, uh, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. And eventually that's what they would be doing. They would be mourning and certainly when judgment would finally come, they would be in complete mourning because they would be taken captive by the Assyrians for a number of years. Notice verse 3. Whoso loveth wisdom rejoiceth, rejoiceth with his father. I'm sorry. Whoso loveth wisdom rejoiceth his father, but he that keepeth company with harlots spendeth his substance. And that's a key issue in the northern kingdom of Israel because of the prophecies 
that, the, that Hosea had to give to the country. Besides, he was an object lesson having to marry a harlot to be an object lesson for the people of Israel who were doing exactly that. Consider also now that there is an admonition given in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, to warn of the consequences for similar, beha uh, similar behavior. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, because here in verses 7 through 13, and of course it is, it is based upon the examples of the Old Testament, it is based upon the examples of the Hebrew Scriptures, but here in Hebrews 3, verse 7, it says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, when the people provoked God in the wilderness. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, which means they tested him, and saw my works 40 years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. They do always err in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Now, we're not even talking about the northern kingdom now. We're talking about the children of Israel that were in the wilderness experience after coming out of being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Think about that for a moment that God himself says they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. Well, what ways would that have been? Think about it. God was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with them. He led them. He protected them. When they complained about needing water, he gave them water. When they complained about no food, he gave them manna. Uh, I mean, what, what did God not do for his people? So I swear in my wrath, verse 11, they shall not enter into my rest. Out of all those millions of people that came out of Egypt and went through the 40 years of the wilderness in Sinai, out of all of those people, only two entered into the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses. But Moses was, a, was an object lesson too. Because Moses was a type of the law. Joshua, whose name, Yehoshua, God is salvation, was the type of Jesus Christ to lead his people into the promised land. Another generation a new generation. So then, what Paul says in 12, verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Because when you look at the bottom line of the people of, of the northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't believe God. That's why they went where they did. In any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from, notice, in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Well, that's what we're talking about here in this early part of chapter 4. And so, what were the results then of Israel's sinful and, devi and deviant behavior that the Lord would judge? What were the results of their sinful behavior? Let's look at verses 3 through 5, now of, he, of Hosea chapter 4. It says, Therefore shall the land mourn. Remember, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. So notice what it says. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. That is a very interesting word I'll explain in just a moment. Everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Everything and every one is affected. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive, nor reprove another. 
For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. And therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. Now what they did, uh, what they did brought even more charges against them. That's why I said the first two verses only had a, a certain number of charges. There, there are more charges now coming uh, in this courtroom. In this case, the people were guilty. Because of what they had done and what they had begun to do, they were guilty of polluting the land. They were guilty uh, with, uh, polluting the land with their sin and with their selfishness. That's verse 3. The wretchedness of the nation was, in effect, choking out the strength and productivity of the land. Think about that for just a moment. We, we have, not because of who's in the White House and not because of you know, who we vote for or whatever. We have what we have in this country right now because God has allowed it for a reason. There is a certain amount of prosperity that, you know, from the, when you look at the whole financial picture of the, of the United States. And it's here now for a moment. However long that is, we don't know. Because if we live properly and, 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 and focus our attention pro uh, prophetically on the Word of God, we're, we're looking at, at, a, at a time that has been prophesied. A time that is going to, uh, a time that is taking place before the coming of Jesus Christ for His church. And we're looking at that very clearly. The modern birth of the nation of Israel, the, the, the state of Israel, as we talked about a little bit, and we talk about it a lot, but uh, what we talked about back uh, on, on Sunday about 1948 and, and, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the birth of uh, the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, was prophetic because Israel has to be the very center of all prophecy. If it isn't, then all we have to deal with is, is metaphor and, and analogy and, and everything else, and, and, uh, and, and, and no, that's, that's not why God gave us so much of his word the way he did. Israel has to be at the center of, of all of these things. They're prospering in, in, in a way more than they ever have because of what God had intended for them. Part of the prophecy of bringing Israel back into the land had to do with their fruitfulness in a barren land. Before Israel became a nation again, that land was completely barren. Those of you who have been with us to Israel, and we're looking at going back uh, next year, but you know that Lord willing, I'd rather go home than, you know, Israel, even though I, I don't mind going back. I mean, it's like a second home. But, you know, when we see the land and the fruitfulness of it, we know it's the Lord. How in the world could they have just been able to grow what they grow over there when all it was was dirt and rock for the most part? So there is, you know, they're going through that time of prosperity. But here's the thing. We don't trust in prosperity. We are not to trust in our riches. We're not to trust in anything. We're to trust in the Lord. So if something turns, you know, <laughs> upside down or side, uh, right side up or whatever, if it just turns away from what we know, we know one thing. We still have God to trust in. God will take care of us. He always has. He always will. But Israel was, in our text, Israel was getting to a point where the wretchedness of their nation was choking out the strength and productivity of the land. They were in decline. I want you to consider the word languish. I mentioned that word languish here in verse 3. It is a Hebrew word, amal, A-M-A-L, which means to droop. It means to be sick, to, to mourn, to be weak, and to grow feeble. It's a, it's a very... Um, instructive word in a sense and that to language is just they were just drooping there was no joy no true joy 
things were going south for everybody. So, so both the people and the animals were becoming sick and dying, most likely due to disease and plague. But principles had been laid forth since the fall of man. And, and this is what we need to take hold of. The principles that have been set forth since the fall of man about the consequences of sin. Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. After they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after God said, if you eat of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall begin to die. You will die. The spirit died immediately. The flesh would begin the process of death. And so in verse 17 of Genesis 3, it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. You know, it's an interesting thing that people read that and say, Oh my, that's pretty sexist here, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. Listen carefully, folks. It's not about that. The devil has turned that in, into a, a big political issue. Not God. God has an established order. He's always had an established order. This is why we need to listen and pay attention to the word of God. Thou shalt not eat of it, he said. Curse is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. You'll die and go right back into the ground. But there's an illustration given even closer to the time of Hosea, found in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. And remember that Isaiah was a contemporary of Hosea. He was mostly in the south and Hosea was in the north. But in Isaiah 24, and this applies to both the north and the southern kingdom, in Isaiah 24, verses 6 to 12, it says, therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate, empty, completely empty, just like the land of Israel had been at one time before 1948, completely desolate. And therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. The new wine mourneth. The vine languishes. It says the vine just droops. All the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth. Tabrets being the, the tambourines. There was no more sound of joy or songs of joy. The noise of them that rejoice endeth. The joy of the harp ceaseth. That's hard to say. Ceaseth. Ceaseth. Okay. Yeah. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. And the city has left desolation. The gate is smitten with destruction. What, what, what a picture that is. In a way, every nation has that kind of, of a beginning of losing hope. We, you know, we've, we've seen Russia in the news so often here re recently. But during the time of the Soviet Union, and even today, it hasn't changed. They're breadlines still. There's no prosperity, there's only poverty. People get in line for bread and they do what they can to get vodka because that's their, their wine. That's what they, they drink to forget. Same goes here. We're more sophisticated, unfortunately. 
got all kinds of of uh, specialized drugs and and even the ones that aren't so specialized, you know, whoever wants them tries to get them. Is that because we're doing so well as a nation, as a people? As believers in Jesus Christ and awaiting his return, while living in a land that languishes due to the sins of men, and our own can be counted in that number, by the way. We also are exhorted. We're exhorted to take note of the condition of the earth. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know, we can look at the animal kingdom, we can look at all of the things that we see around us, that which has been created by God. We see one thing, God knows another about his own creation that even the animals of, of this world and of this life, whether domesticated or not, whether in the wild or not, they're waiting for the, manifestations of the, son, the manifestation of the sons of God. They're waiting for a time when God is going to send his only begotten son, when it's time for him to come to this earth. Because if you continue to understand this in the light of, of what Jesus said when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. When we consider all of that, think about this. The creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. There are, there are more animals and, and wildlife that, are, that have more hope than most of the people living on this earth. That's pretty much what it's saying. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, which is in fact waiting for. Uh, for the Lord to come and to take us home. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we who are corrupted or corruptible will become incorruptible. Paul writes this, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15. And it ties together with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the hope that we are to have in the coming of Jesus who comes to snatch away his church. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Man, I want to give you something to comfort you, to let you know that we have something to look forward to. I am not looking for Antichrist. I am looking for Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we need to be doing looking for him. Well, a ninth charge is given, and I'm just noticing that I'm way behind schedule. I hope you don't mind. We'll be here till 10. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to do that to you. I promise. <laughs> I'll just end at the right time. A ninth charge is given against Israel in the first part of verse 4, going back to Hosea. Excuse me, Hosea 4, verse 4. Because the people were guilty 
of blaming others instead of accepting responsibility for their own behavior and admitting their own guilt. Notice the phrase in verse 4, yet let no man strive nor reprove another. There is no question that the northern kingdom of Israel was in terrible shape both morally and spiritually. But there is always a tendency to blame others, especially the priests. Notice the next phrase there. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. You're the ones that got us into this mess. <laughs> right? As in our own country today. Charges and countercharges being thrown in all directions at political opponents, and not the answer to any, this is not the answer to any of our nation's problems. Think about that for a moment. What has this nation become in such a short amount of time? But now that doesn't mean that the priests themselves, going back to Israel, that doesn't mean that the priests were innocent of certain charges. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, they weren't innocent. The Lord, but, but the Lord was exhorting the people to quit blaming others and accept responsibility for their behavior. What was their behavior? They went hog wild with what they were told they could do. They could have walked away. They could have said, this is not worshiping the Lord. This is not honoring the God who created us as the Levites did when they left the northern kingdom of Israel to go back to Judah. Because they were no, their services were no, no longer desired. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm trying to because of time. In any event, each of them, the people and the priests, bore some responsibility for the problems of the nation, much like Adam and even the garden. Remember, you know, going back to Genesis 3, I'll, I'll read it to you. You all are familiar with this, right? Where the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Hey, where are you? Where, are you? where art thou? And he said, I, I heard the voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, well who told you that you were naked? Uh, Adam, hast thou eaten of the tree? Where have I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I did eat, yeah, but, but she did it. She gave it to me. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Does anybody want to take responsibility here? Adam did a little bit. He said, well, I did eat, but, but she was the one. And then she said, it was a serpent. <sighs> we live in a day and a time among a generation. We live in a day and time among a generation that has learned regrettably that there is no need to take responsibility for their own actions. I mean, it's not wholesale, but there's a lot of that that goes on. I, I respect so much families and, and, and institutions and organizations that teach people to take responsibility of their actions. The church should always do that. And there's so many other things that, that, that do that. Schools should do that. But we've fallen into a trap where uh, we, that doesn't happen as much anymore. You know, uh, we haven't really taught people that, that uh, you know, the, you have to work hard for things. Too many things are given handed down quickly, fast, you know. I don't know whether it's to keep people, keep young people uh, babysit, you know, being babysat by electronics or whatever. I mean, just, you know. But it comes down to n not taking any responsibility. 
That was predicted, by the way, though. It was predicted, by the way, to a certain, uh, uh, to a certain degree, it was predicted by a man named Agur. Agur, the son of Yake. You find his name in Proverbs 30, verse 1. And it mentions prophecy there, that it is a prophecy. But in verse 11, and that's where I want to direct you right now, Proverbs 30, verse 11, it says, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation, notice this, and this is the, the verse you want to see. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up, a show of arrogance, as it were. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The Apostle Paul made it clear, made it quite clear that we are all responsible for the things we do and that trying to pass the buck, so to speak, only convicts us all the more. It isn't a phrase that he uses in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, when he's speaking actually to those that were in the Roman church who were of, the Jewish, of, the, of a Jewish background. And you can see that in the context of chapters 2 through 4. And of course, if you remember, chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans is all about Israel itself, but we're not talking about all that right now. But verse 1, he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. So, and here's, the, here's what he says, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. When you don't take responsibility for what you've done, but you put it onto someone else, you are condemning yourself. For, that, for thou that judges doest the same thing. You do the same thing. So to judge another while you're doing the very same thing that they're doing, that hypocrisy is what he is pointing to. And we have to take the responsibility for our sin. The good thing is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we have, we have this, this encouragement. It's, a, it's an exhortation, but it's also, it, it really is a, a, an encouragement when, when John writes in 1 John 1, 9, that if we sin, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we're, you know, we're still sinners. I don't know about you. I know that there's groups of Christians that go around thinking that they're perfect and they don't make any mistakes now. You know, they, they, they really mishandle uh, uh, expositionally. They mishandle a lot of First John, and uh, and so it's it's they're, they're not understanding here. Because I mean, all you have to do is read the first chapter of First John, because he makes it clear. You know, these distinctions. If you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, you know, you'll be like those that do that and you're going to be wrong. And not a step with God. Then you go to the book of James and James in his letter to the church clarifies the progression of our own sins from temptation to the very act of committing said sins. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted with God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, you see, his own sin, his own discretion, and enticed, just as Eve was enticed. Yet she was responsible. 
And Adam being there, by the way, if you remember, Adam was, was just right there. I mean, he wasn't at Walmart. He was there. He did nothing. And that was his sin. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And I want to get to this new indictment. I have only about three minutes, so I'm going to get to it right away, and then we're going to say, join us next week for the remainder of this study. A new indictment would be leveled against the priests and the prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel. And I'll just read it, and we'll, we'll probably just stop here, and I'll save the rest for the next time. But Hosea chapter 4, verses 4 through 11 says, Yet let no man strive nor reprove another. We already said, uh, spoke about that. For thy people are as they that strive with a the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day. That is a, a statement to the priest, not so much to the people. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night. And I will destroy thy mother. I will destroy the nation. Uh, my people are destroyed. Now, now this is the most recognizable verse of the book of Hosea. My people are destroyed for lack of of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on, the on their iniquity, and, they, and there shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and re reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Whoredom and, wi and wine and new wine take away the heart. All of these results of that sin of no mercy, no truth, no knowledge of God, lead to all of these sins that take away the heart. We'll, we'll come back to all of that. But um, I want to leave you with something of uh, something of, of an encouragement. So I'm going to jump all the way down to Matthew 5. So I was going to close with this. There's a lot of stuff in between this here. So, But I, we'll, we'll close with this, and we'll come back to it next time. But of course, we'll continue on to the end of chapter 4 next week. Matthew 5, verse 13. Because with all that we've learned as believers in Jesus Christ, this is what we are to do. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And then Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are to take the light of the glory of God, the light of the glory of his word. As you remember, we were reading from Psalm 19105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. We are to take the light of his word, the light of his glory, the light of his presence, and shine in the darkness of this world. We described a lot of darkness this evening, some of it in Israel of the past, some of it in Israel of the present, a lot of it in our own country today.
a lot of darkness. But God has given us to be light to them. Let's be that light to the glory of God, to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen?